This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 9th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Is universal basic income a way to get more human brain power off the sidelines? Some consequentialist libertarian thinkers believe so. Otto Leto is a PhD student at King's College in London. We spoke last month in Las Vegas. Universal basic income is an idea that gets kicked around a lot. Um, you know, you hear it mostly from left-wing people, Democratic politicians or academics, uh, but there are some libertarians who make the case for a universal basic income. And I think the case that you uh, and your co-author here, Miranda Perry Fleischer, make in discussing um, universal basic income is that it could do a lot to get people out of their ruts in a way that um, our current patchwork of welfare programs do not, in fact, actively discourage. So what is the, what, give me the general pitch. Well, the general pitch is this. Um, and you say rightly that uh, today it's uh, associated with the left, but really, if you go back, for example, to the Nixon administration, and they were the first uh, to really almost get this uh, on the on the on the national agenda. And uh, Milton Friedman, being the economic advisor there, means that there's a long uh, libertarian pedigree here. The idea is that um, having a simple system of uh, poverty relief, which um, grants all citizens access to um, unconditional, basic, sufficient level of income, uh, no strings attached, no questions asked, would be more efficient and um, more streamlined and more market-friendly approach to helping poor people. Okay, so uh, just to be very clear, the strains of libertarianism uh, that might endorse this are broadly consequentialists, right? Not, Not the kind of people who talk about you know, it is my income. I have earned it. You're not entitled to it. Let us not. Let's not do this. We're talking about economic efficiency. We're talking about, uh, in general, increasing the size of the pie as uh, as the goal. Uh, I, I think that's generally true. Although there are some uh, rights-based libertarians, so-called left libertarians, and bleeding-heart libertarians who who uh, could be, be uh, also in favor of it for the point of view that they think that they might be something like a basic right to economic security that could be justified. But uh, yeah, it's broadly my argument and, and, and the argument that many libertarians make is a consequentialist one. And I think this is the one that makes the most sense uh, because what you want to have is you, you want to have an efficient system. You want to have a streamlined system and you want to focus on the long-term capacities of the society to solve problems, the long-term capacity to provide innovations and creative um, solutions to uh, the various uh, problems that people have. Okay, so what's the upside? I mean, I can understand from a perspective, uh, you know, I've spoken with uh, Matt Zolensky, among others, on on this topic. Um, some The upside that I can see right off the bat is, uh, you know, instead of having people uh, behaving like rats in a maze. That is, you behave a certain way, you qualify for this program, you behave a certain way, you qualify for this other program. A whole lot of that brain power of our greatest resource, humanity, is freed up. Is that, that That's part of your argument. Exactly. So the crucial thing here is that, look, the freedom is sort of dispersed across the society. You have all sort of, all levels of society who have certain access to to capacities to really realize their their um, potential. And, um, you know, poor people often <laughs> lack that capacity. I mean, sometimes they lack it and they really need uh, outside help and paternalistic support. But for the most part, I think this kind of paternalistic approach often ends up stifling these capacities that are inherent in the poor communities 
and in the minds of poor people themselves. And when I say poor people, I just really mean people who have problems, right? So people who have problems that money could solve or having freedom could solve. And this really is a lot of people. Because I think poverty really is ultimately about finding creative solutions to problems. And sometimes even just being able to identify problems. And sometimes we don't even know what the problems are. And often we assume that we know, in which case we have ready-made solutions that we offer to people. But what we really need is to focus on the discovery process, as Hayek would call it. The discovery process of finding out where the problems are, how those can be addressed, and then developing creative solutions using entrepreneurial processes and innovative processes of various kinds to, to solve those problems. Okay, so if we understand policy as process, um, then we should, you know, th- what, what would this look like practically? Because so few people who are proposing a universal basic income are actually proposing eliminating the bulk of the trillion, multi-trillion dollar welfare state spending that the U.S. engages in. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's there's room for convergence, but the convergence point is unlikely to be the sort of Charles Murray, you know, sort of ideal state of replacing the whole welfare state. I think that's, you know, so that's definitely like for people who th- think that the libertarian case for basic income is the is the most plausible, or the, sorry, not the most plausible, but rather the most desirable one. Uh, you know, this is certainly an obstacle to it. Uh, but I think convergence towards it—that is to say, uh, simplifying the system, reducing the number drastically of the programs we have, uniting them into a simple program and reducing the paternalistic element to it, um, giving people more freedom with what they do with the money, I think this would go a long way, even if we never get to the ultimate point. And I do think the implementation problem, implementation problem, together with, the, with the, of course, the overall cost problem, those are, are, are the downsides of the program. But I think they might be outweighed by the potential benefits gained from, from the streamlining and uh, simplification process and the freedom that it gives to people. So what's wrong with, for example, negative income tax? as a comparative with uh, a basic income? I think negative income tax, depending on how you define it, because negative income tax today can be, you know, you know, some countries have implemented forms of negative income tax, which are kind of conditional, means-tested, and, uh, you know, some means-testing is sort of inherent in the program. We don't need to get into the technical details, but the I think the Friedmanite model of negative income tax is unconditional. It's uh, it's universal. Everybody has automatic access to it. Um, and there's a slight difference in which uh, organization runs it, whether it's a tax authority or some welfare authority. But I think the end result is pretty much the same. So I don't think there's a big difference. And I believe that negative income tax and universal basic income are basically two versions of the same program. I think one of the critiques of uh, universal basic income is largely cultural and the impacts that people claim that, uh, and maybe this is no different from our current welfare state, uh, the impacts that that would have on people's propensity to work and to feel responsible for people close to them. I mean, this is an argument against social security, to be clear, that uh, your familial obligations are, have been replaced in some ways by state support. Yeah. So this really um, is a very 
you know, complicated issue because if you go back to, for example, Karl Popper and Friedrich Hayek, they already were talking about how the um, the old sort of tribal relations, care relations that people had in the, in the in the sort of smaller group societies in which they lived have been attenuated by living in this in this globalized uh, market economy, and so that that is a problem. Like, how are we going to replace those? And some people say, well, we can just rely on civil society, we can rely we can rely on charities, but um, I think charities are often not enough. That was anyway the conclusion that Friedman drew and others have drawn. Um, interestingly, Charles Murray, who um, is perhaps one of the most important um, sort of conservative libertarians um, who has written about the failures of the welfare state as a creator of dependency, has re in recent years become um, uh, supportive of universal basic income as precisely a way to return the money back in the hands of uh, local communities and the people themselves, and this way to uh, revitalize those local communities and to instill a sense of responsibility uh, because you know if if there's no chance of getting rid of this um, social commitment and perhaps there is really no uh, moral justification for it either because we probably want to help people in some ways if we have this uh, commitment um, and anyway it seems we are institutionally stuck with that um, I think you know this is a way of spending that money that we do in a better way and uh, one of the reasons why responsibility might be uh, improved under basic income is that that um, it uh, gives people access to a sufficient level of income, but um, it also retains the incentive for people to make more money on top of that and also to develop those extra networks of care in addition to that. And, and in the long term, I think this would be a way to uh, provide kind of a combination of civil society approaches, business approaches, and, and then the involvement from the government in terms of setting up the basic infrastructure, but otherwise mostly taking a hands-off approach. Where are the parallels here? Where do you see uh, interesting parallels between a system of essentially, let's be clear, state support for individuals who are who may or may not choose to work, may or may not be able to, um, and maybe in a different context like foreign aid? Yeah, so I, I think there's no clear, simple parallel between how you should organize um, uh, poverty relief in a country that lacks access to basic <laughs> education, sanitation, and so on, uh, and, and a country like ours, which has all of that. Um, but I think there, there are some parallels. And I think one of the clearest parallels is the prevalence of expert failure and government failure. And there, the parallels are strong. And indeed, it's often the same organizations that contribute to the expert failure and the government failure. It's often precisely the Western organizations, Western governments, not just governments, by the way, but also private charities and various non-governmental organizations, which also often assume that they know better than the people at the local level what they need. And these uh, failures of foreign aid have been documented amply by people like William Easterly, Dampisa Moyo, and others. And uh, for example, here's one interesting example. Um, the, um, there, there was a effort some years ago to provide uh, mosquito nets to people. And this is kind of a famous case of uh, of kind of foreign aids uh, coming from abroad, experts delivering the goods to people in poor countries. But those mosquito nets um, ended up often being used as fishing nets. And, you know, this is partially uh, uh, pointing to the creativity of people because they can they can use them in different ways. But of course, the, the downside of this is that this was not the most efficient way to provide them with fishing nets. Much easier would have been 
helping just give them money. And indeed, these mosquito nets are create ecological disaster because they're not particularly meant for the task of of, uh, of fishing. And so um, much easier would have been just to give them money and, of course, to help them educate them. Sometimes you do need to to educate people on the, the you know the basic things, but that's that's why you need kind of a multi-leveled approach to solving solving some problems. But but uh, yes, yeah, so basically the lack of freedom, a lack of ability to provide those entrepreneurial solutions on the local level and taking advantage of the local knowledge is precisely the failure both in the developing world and in the developed world. Right, and the parallels that I, I would draw from that are uh, maybe some people don't need food support, uh, food stamps or something like that. Some people don't need housing support. Uh, some people don't need uh, some, you know, some specific voucher that can only be used for X, Y, or Z. What they need is cash. And that's why I think cash, any particular cash with no strings attached, um, is a universal voucher. That's how I look at it. It's a universal voucher that you can use on anything. It doesn't have limitations. And some people say, well, it would be better if we leave it limited to useful things, but then how do you define useful? It would be good if we ex- exclude some, you know, um, horrible things like, I don't know, drugs or tobacco. I mean, Maybe, but even there, I think uh, the effort to try and exclude these things often does more harm than good. Um, so yeah, I think the idea of, of of having this kind of a universal voucher that is just simply money that people can spend on whatever is often uh, the best way. And um, indeed, the, some of the evidence that we have seen in cash transfer programs around the world suggests that these fears that people are just going to use the money to you know get drunk and so on doesn't really uh, spell out itself out at least in the developing world context. Otto Leto is a PhD student at King's College in London. We spoke last month in Las Vegas. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 